As a first responder, you see, hear, and smell things throughout your career that you'll never forget. There are moments that will cause you to flash back to a prior experience, and there's little you can do to stop that. Hi, everybody. My name is Joe Seflu. I'm a police captain in the San Francisco Bay Area with over 25 years experience. On this episode, I interviewed Mark DeBana, who is a retired police sergeant with over 33 years of experience. Mark takes us on a journey throughout his career that led him into depression and having uh, PTSD. He also talks in great detail about how he was moments away from committing suicide when he was saved by a coworker. Mark takes solace now in speaking about what happened to him, the lack of support he received from some, and the work he's now doing with Blue Help to honor, educate, lead, and prevent suicides among first responders. So welcome to episode number five of the Mindful Cops. Hey, Mark, you there? Hey, Joe, how you doing, brother? I'm doing great, sir. How are you? I am just awesome. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate this. Oh, yeah. You know, I figured uh, in the midst of what we're going on, going on in our country right now, uh, we might as well just have a conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just total, total craziness, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, pretty much unprecedented for us. Yeah, yeah. We I was in a uh, I was in a supermarket the other day and um, ran into two friends of mine, two, the firefighters, and they were getting their uh, dinner stuff for the for the station. And um, this they were getting some of that Pam cooking spray, and yeah. it was uh, it was two for one. <clears throat> and um, so when they grabbed two off the shelf, this woman started screaming at them, calling them hoarders and uh, things like that. So I said to her, I go, you know, it's two for one. Well, they should leave one behind. Like, oh, okay. So, this Those is the this word. times we're in, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it is. You know, you know. And I, I looked at her. I go, I'm not even going to entertain that stupid comment. Yeah, you know. So, so it's sad. Well, it really it is, is, man. It, it is. truly is. Hey, but let's let's get into it because okay. I think um, I think this this has the potential to being a very long podcast, and I don't want okay. to keep it longer than an hour. So. Um, You've got a very interesting career. I know you were in law enforcement for 34 years. So you can, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, in that 34 years, um, what you did and kind of like your, your uh, brief overview of your career? Sure, sure. It was actually 33 years, Joe. Um, so I started off my career in Massachusetts in a, a town called Braintree. I got sworn in on June 6, 1985. So I've been around for a while. So if you, you know, and, and I say this all the time. If you told me that I'd be on, well, right now, if I'd be on a podcast um, on, on June 6, 1985, talking about mental health, I would have said, you're, you're, you're totally insane. First of all, I probably right. would have said, would have said what is a podcast, first of all? <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, and and uh, so I started off there. Uh, I, I, worked, I worked in Braintree for a couple of years. From there, I transferred over to um, the Amtrak police. A lot of people don't know the Amtrak has their own police department. And I worked for them up to 1993. And when I was with Amtrak, I was I was in the uniform division, and I was also on the street crimes unit, and uh, it was that was it was a really good job. We I made a lot of arrests, made a lot of assistance contacts, a lot of dope comes off those trains, and the train stations you know backed up right next to the subways, so we, we dealt with the subways a lot also. You know, so we dealt with a transient type uh, people, whether whether they're commuters, homeless, uh, drug addiction, drug dealers and things like that. So 
when I, when I was an Amtrak cop, I, I didn't deal a lot with like domestic violence or burglaries or things like that. So it was kind of a different type of policing. Sure. And then unfortunately, uh, in 93, Amtrak went through some really bad uh, budget cuts. So I got laid off. Um, a buddy of mine got laid off also from a different department in Massachusetts. And him and his brother moved to Florida. So I followed their lead, went to Florida, got hired by Seminole County Sheriff's Office, uh, and did 25 years there. And just and, uh, from there, I, uh, I did a lot there. I was a public information officer. I was on the DUI unit. Uh, I was in the traffic unit. Um, I, I was on the civil service board and uh, I was a sergeant for 19 of those 25 years there assigned to traffic and patrol. And uh, I would say out of my whole career, being a sergeant probably was the best, the best, uh, the best, best job I had. And I, I thought because um, you, you're, you're, at, you're, you're right there. At, you're right there with the guys. You know, you're, 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 you're part of the administration. Absolutely. Because you're a sergeant. But um just to be right there on, on both sides, it's just, it's, it was really, really cool. And uh, I was a sergeant that I truly believed in lead, leading by example. I would never you know, ask, ask the people that I, that I led to do something that, that I wouldn't do. And I was an active sergeant. I went out there, made arrests, wrote tickets, answered calls, you know, whatever, whatever needed to be done. I just wanted to show the guys and girls that, that I was there for them. I was also on peer support and critical incident while I was at the uh, Seminole County Sheriff's Office also. And it was it was a good it was a good run, but uh, I could have stayed another five years, and I chose I chose not to. I uh, I took an early retirement. I thought thirty three years was 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 more than enough. So um, I first of all I agree with you. I think being a sergeant was one of the funnest assignments I've ever had, um, hands down. Uh, but what? Why did you decide to you know leave early? Was it uh, you started having difficulties? Um, what what was it, what was it? It was, the the agency took a shift um, took a shift to a maybe a softer approach on law enforcement, which uh, you know most agencies now are doing that, and that's fine. Um, but it just I felt that I wasn't getting the backing from my bosses, and I developed some compassion fatigue where I was getting sick and tired of going to the, uh, the same house or the same crappy hotel for the overdoses, you know, the opiate issues, uh, the lack of support from the community. But on the flip side, there were a lot of great people also that supported us. So for every person that didn't like us, there was a person that liked us. So that was kind of a 50-50. But um, one, of the, uh, one, one of the incidents that happened uh, in my later part of my career was uh, a guy in my squad um, pulled, over a, uh, pulled over a car, come to find out it was an off-duty deputy who was DUI. And uh, we decided we weren't going to arrest him because this deputy has, has documented PTSD uh, he has an alcohol problem, and uh, we felt that uh, arresting him would do more damage than good. And uh, so we decided to get him a ride home. We called his wife and got him a ride home. And again, because if, if we arrested him, and I would have done that for civilian also, and he had two Purple Hearts from being overseas. overseas. And, you know, and, and, that, and that's something that, you know, that we need to recognize, that these guys and girls went overseas, and, and they risked their lives for us, for our freedom, for our country. And uh, is, it, is, it, is DUI against the law? But we don't arrest every single person that, that uh, breaks the law. There'll be, no, there'll, be no there'll be no room in the jails. So long, so long story short, um, I am going on suspension because of that, because they said I use, I use poor judgment being the sergeant on the scene. Uh, my discipline came out that I got terminated. 
And uh, we have a right to appeal. And I appealed, I appealed and got my job back and uh, with, with my sergeant stripes. But with, with, with the appeal came a transfer to a very busy area, to a micromanagement type lieutenant. And I could, just, I could just see the joy. I could just see the right on the walls. They, they just did not want me there. And I still had, and, and the, when the day I got fired, I was at 24 years and three months. And retirement system in the state of Florida starts at 25. So I had eight months, um, I'm sorry, nine months um, that, 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 that I had a ride out of nine months of like, you know, what's going to happen next. Got a little paranoid. Uh, and, I did, and I never really got much support from the administration through my whole career because I was the type of guy that uh, was spoke, speaks up. And, you know, just as well as I do, when you speak up, uh, people take offense to that because they're hearing what they don't want to hear. And I'm not, I'm not the guy that's going to go in there and kiss somebody's ass. You know, I'll be respectful. I respect rank. I respect, I respect authority. But I'm not going to kiss your ass because you're higher rank than me and you demand respect. You don't really get respect just by giving respect. So that, right. that kind of laid everything up to there. And then uh, during my career, my side battle, my mental health issues, um, it just, uh, it got me, you no. Know, I, I got zero support from the agency. And when I say zero, I mean complete zero. I was struggling on my own. So when you, when you say, you, you mentioned a couple of, of very good things. You said compassion fatigue. You said you're having some mental health issues. Um, so what did, what did you, how did that, what did you feel? I mean, what was going on that, to make you have, you had those things. So can you go into a little more detail about that? Like what was going on? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things, one of the things that stood out in my career was I went to 9-11 right after the towers were hit. I was up there three or four days later and um and I, I can remember this like it was yesterday. As soon as I got out of my cruiser, when I started walking towards the uh, the buildings, I could smell death. I could smell burnt flesh. I could smell that nasty smell in the air. And that really, like, really, for some reason, it hit, it hit home for me. It just was, this is this is unbelievable. You know, 3,000 plus people are, lay, are laying in that, in that rubble right now, and we can't get to them. Could somebody still be alive? Sure, it's a possibility, absolutely. And then dealing with the first responders, dealing with the NYPD, uh, FDNY, Port Authority PD, and all the other first responders that came from out of state and all around New York to help out, it, it was a- absolutely horrific. It, we, you know, we, helped, we helped remove a body while we were there. We, helped, we assisted NYPD. But I just felt like I needed to be doing more. And um, we, we, you know, we, we did a lot. We provided security for, uh, you know, for the site. We provided security for ce- celebrities. We um, we actually had a couple of walking beats, which was good because uh, an NYPD officer was able to take a day off because we were up there. We actually filled in uh, their their position. But when I came back to work, uh, when I, sorry, when I came back to Florida, I, I was thinking about that a lot. And one of the first calls I handled when I came back to Florida was a car crash where the vehicle was fully engulfed. And uh, me and another deputy pulled it at the same time. We got our fire extinguishers out. And we could literally hear the guy screaming for help, and we couldn't get to him because the car was literally fully engulfed. Our fire extinguisher did uh, fire extinguishers nothing uh, to help the fire, put the fire out, and nothing against the fire department. But it seemed like it took like forever for them to get there. When our reality, it probably didn't. And when they put the fire out, he was already burned to death. But what I could smell again is I could smell that burned flesh, and it, and it triggered me. And I started feeling 
horribly guilty that what could I have done that I could have done better to help try and save this person? And uh, unfortunately, I couldn't save this person. And that started bothering me. I started getting, I started getting a lot of thoughts about it while I was working. Um, I started developing nightmares from it. And uh, we were offered, we, were, uh, we came back from 9-11, we were offered uh, counseling, but I chose not to because I just felt if I went, people would think I was weak or I couldn't handle the job. So I, cho- I chose not to. And I, and I think if I'm correct, the 10 of us that went up there, none of us decided to get therapy. So during the course of the time, uh, it started building up and building up. And then I had an event, um, you know, the years of being a cop. And, and as you know, seeing the, seeing the deaths, seeing the, you know, the homicides, seeing the sexual abuse, domestic violence, seeing the, the worst of the worst. And eventually it just takes a toll on you because it just seems like it just never ends. And we re- really don't have a time sometimes to take a breather. And one thing I talk about is this is after we see a horrific event, we'll use the uh, we'll use the car fire as an example, is we, you know, we drive one-person vehicles. So we drive off, and we're driving now, going to our next call, or if we have some downtime, we're typing a report, or we're just sitting in the parking lot uh, decompressing, but we have nobody to talk to because we're in that one-man car because everybody works their zones and works their uh, areas. Right. Now, as a sergeant, what I did was anytime we had a – a, a major event, serious events or whatever, I get with the guys and girls and I, I talk with them. Hey, is, you know, is, is this event bothering you? Do you need some help with something? Uh, most of them were like, nah, nah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. But that's the, that's the front that we put on in law enforcement. So also during my career, um, I had a baby die in my, uh, in my arms. I was sitting at a fire station and this woman pulled up and she handed me her four month old baby. It said she thinks her baby's not breathing and it wasn't. And I did CPR on the baby, and I could not bring the baby back. And unfortunately, the fire station I was parked at about two o'clock in the morning was um, was, was was vacant because they were out on a call. So I had to get my radio call the FD, and the baby uh, I could not bring the baby back. I rode in the back of the ambulance with the baby, and um, I tried to do everything possible I could do to save the baby, you know, via my training and helping the paramedics. And unfortunately, the baby didn't make it. And when the doctor pronounced the baby dead, I was in the emergency room with them. And that was absolutely horrific. A four-year-old month, month uh, baby that has no chance to, 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 uh, to move on. And that's really, really sad. And the, the dad got very upset with me. He said, well, you should have done more. Um, you let my baby die. And I just tried to be so nice to him and said, you know, you understand I did the best that I could here. And unfortunately, I, I, I couldn't save the baby. So that gave me a lot of that started giving me some com- compassion fatigue, and it gave me a lot of anger also because why couldn't I save the baby? I ended up going to the baby's funeral, and when I talked to the mom and dad there, they were actually a lot more nicer than they were the night at, in the emergency room, and understandably so. They were under a lot of stress. Uh, they just they, you know the four month old baby just died. They didn't know what to think, and I'm not blaming them for their anger by any means because right. they were upset. Um, so I went to so I started developing nightmares. And my nightmares were uh, really explicit nightmares, like the baby was in my mailbox. Um, it was in my cruiser. I could hear the baby uh, gasping for air. I could, uh, I'd wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, flashbacks. And it was getting, it was really, it was starting to affect my life. It was getting really scary that why am I having these nightmares and these thoughts? 
And uh, I am going to CPR tr- uh, renewal training about six months after the event. And um, when, it, when it came time to do the infant, I had, I went to the, I had to go in the bathroom and I threw up. Wow. And I said, you know, I said what, what, you know, what is going on here? And when I went to medical calls, I was afraid to help out because I was afraid I was going to screw something up. So that, that really, really bothered me. And uh, like I said, the, the, you know, the nightmare of uh, walking out to your mailbox and open up your mailbox and there's a dead baby in your mailbox, you know, that's not normal. Right. And that, but I, but I, I never told anybody about it because I didn't want to get judged or anything like that. And then when I went to, and I told, uh, I told my immediate supervisor about it and he told me to toughen up. Wow. And, uh, and that's really not the answer I, I, I was expecting to hear. Now, from him, that probably wasn't the answer I expected to hear because he was a horrible supervisor. He was a micromanager. He, his, he liked to screw with people. He liked to belittle people. And his line used to say to me all the time was, was this, was that uh, you're only a sergeant. You're not a lieutenant. My answer back was, well, you were, you were a sergeant three months ago. So that to you, you'd be pretty pissed off. So don't insult me of the way uh, of me being a sergeant. You've moved on because I, in my 19 years of being, being a sergeant, I, I never tested for the lieutenant's test once. I, uh, I, I liked being on, the, being on the front lines. I really liked being with the troops. And it was, uh, but this was eating me away. And then he started messing with me. He called me a coward a couple of times. Uh, he started um, micromanaging. He said, "I'm going to make you. I'm going to make you a sergeant the way I was." Well, and I, my, my answer back was, "Well, I didn't want. I don't want to be that type of sergeant that you were, because you were all about sucking up. You're all about screwing people over, and that's the total opposite of what I believe in." And I'll give you an example, Joe. His uh, the sheriff's radio ID is seventeen one. We used to call him seventeen one and a half. <laughs> so it's, it's a, that should tell that should that should tell you something right there. Yeah, you know, um, and it was and I never played the sucking up game. I have no respect for anybody that sells their soul or, or anything like that. You get your your merits, you get your you get your promotion, you get your reassignments from doing hard work, not not from uh, playing golf with a captain or hanging out with a sheriff or something like that. Now, can you have a relationship with the administration? Absolutely, you can. But you have to keep it on a professional level. Now, can, can it be on a personal level, too? The answer is yes, it can. But when you're using that personal level for your personal gain, that's, that's not cool in any, in any ways. So my, um, I started slipping into a funk. And um, what I mean by a funk was this is my work product started going down low. And I was, like I said before, I was very proactive. I used to make a lot of arrests as a sergeant. I used to write a lot of tickets, made a lot of citizen contacts. Uh, I was, I was, I really liked getting out and talking with people, um, whether you were rich or poor, black or white, whatever, it didn't matter to me. You were a person and I, I treat you with dignity as long as you treat me with dignity. And it worked really well because I, as you can probably tell, I got the gift of gab and, uh, and, uh, which well, works be, my benefit. Because we're Italian. That's right. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. We could talk, a, we could talk right. a dog off a meat wagon, you know? <laughs> so, so we, uh, yeah, we have that gift of gab. But I got to the point now where I started becoming a little bit of isolation where I did I stopped going on a lot of calls. I started just doing my own my own thing. I kind of distanced myself away from the, the people on my shift and I started gaining weight because I was getting really stressed out. I got to the point where I didn't want to go to work anymore. I didn't I didn't have that 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 uh, that drive to get out there and make a difference. It was it was just fading fast. 
And when I was going on these calls, on these overdose calls, these domestics, you know, and I used to think to myself, like a domestic, I used to think, to, why does the wife just leave the husband? You know, what is wrong with you? Or these overdoses, why are you sticking a needle in your arm? Seriously. That's how I was, that's how I was, I was thinking. So that's where the compassion fatigue team came in. So I started, um, you know, I'd go to work. I would just, uh, I would just pretty much late, low key. I went to the calls where I thought I had to go to, like the serious calls, but I wouldn't, I didn't interact with the, uh, the guys and girls too much. And then, um, my, my evaluation came in and I got a very low evaluation and I took that to heart because I always got a very good evaluation and uh, I started gaining weight. And when I, when I stress and when I, uh, when things don't go my way mentally, I, I eat and I binge eat. So what I was doing was, I mean, I was eating and eating and eating. And this sounds really ridiculous when I say this, but within three or four months, I got up to about 200, I think it was 280, I'm sorry, 278 pounds where normally I was right around 240. So I had about a 40 pound uh, weight gain in, in three or four months because I was eating, eating donuts, eating ice cream, eating pizza, uh, eat, you know, eating McDonald's, eating all these bad foods. But I would wash it down with a Diet Coke thinking, okay, all right, this is all right. I, I, get, I, get, I get the Diet Coke. I didn't drink. Sure. I didn't, yeah. I didn't, thank, thank God for advertisements, right? You know, right, and, right. Uh, but I didn't drink water. I didn't work out. Uh, and I was doing, and I, and I didn't like my appearance. And one day I was getting ready for work and I was looking in the mirror and I'm going, oh my God, you, you, you know, I, this is not, I'm not the person I, I used to be. Now, my wife started picking up on this and she's telling me that, hey, listen, you need to get some help. Uh, you, 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 I can tell you, my wife's got a degree in psychology. Um, you know, you, you, you're struggling here. And, oh, I'm not struggling. I'm a struggle. One of the things I said to her all the time was, well, you're not a cop. So you, you don't, you just don't get this. You don't understand the stress that, I, that I'm under right now. At that time, my wife, she's still a registered nurse, but at that time she worked in the, she worked in a very busy emergency room. So she gets stressed. There's no question. There's no question about that. And I didn't like my appearance, which kind of affected our marriage because I was embarrassed by my looks and I was embarrassed by my, my actions uh, the way I talked to her, the way I treated her. Now I never, I never, I never hit her or anything like that. Right, right, right. You know, but I, but I, I, I shunned her. And you know, she has her knees just like anybody else does. And I started sleeping on the couch, and just, and I was just miserable. I was just very, very angry. Uh, I go, I go to, I go to sergeants' meetings, and I have these outbursts, and I'm calling people MFs, and I'm, you know, you're stupid, and uh, and I'm thinking, you know, this is not the same Mark Tabana that uh, was with the life of the party, joking around, saying hi to people, hugging people, uh, you, you know, thing, it, was, it was the exact opposite. She just started beating me down and beating me down. And then one day I was riding to work, I was driving to work. We were taking cars and I was driving to work. And that lieutenant called me and he was so obnoxious to me on the phone. It was, it was pathetic. You're calling me a loser. And that, uh, you know, if I had it my way, you would be working at this agency right now. I'm going to be honest with you. When I tell you this, I'm writing a letter to the sheriff recommending a demotion, if not a termination. Uh, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, this, this I've been a cop since I was 21 years old. I really don't know how to do anything else, nor do I want to do anything else. So as I was driving to work, um, when I hung up with him, I, 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 got, I, I had a panic attack. First time in my life I ever had a panic attack. You know, the chest pains, the sweats. And I pulled to the side of the road and I threw up. And when I was throwing up on the side of the road, a woman pulled in behind me and I started yelling at her, you know, get away from me, get away from me. Don't walk up here. 
and she was in scrubs and she's like, listen, I'm a nurse. I, I, I want to help you. So she sort of walked up to me and uh, she said that uh, she's like, you need to go to the hospital. I, and you, you're, she's, you're, you are not physically okay. I'm like, I'm fine. You'll leave me alone. Leave me alone. Don't, don't, you know, you can leave. So she calls 911 and, and that pissed me off when she called 911 to be honest with you. So nine, the uh, paramedics show up and they take my blood pressure was sky high. My, my heart rate was sky high. I was diaphoretic, real sweaty. And uh, they said, we need to go to the hospital. So I signed out, I signed AMA against medical advice not to go to the hospital. And when I went to work that night, I had a couple of crappy calls, but it just seemed like my world was just crashing around me that I, I could, I could not do anything right. I stopped doing things I, I, I enjoy doing. Uh, like we talked about before, you know, from Boston, I'm a huge Red Sox fan. I, I stopped, I stopped watching baseball. I stopped listening to my favorite music. Uh, I stopped uh, sitting by my pool. Yeah, I stopped exercising. I stopped doing all this stuff that made me happy in my life. So I, I, at the same night, I was, I was parked in an industrial park and I was starting to think to myself that you pretty much my life sucks, you know, um, and what value do I have? to the sheriff's office. What value do I have to my wife? I feel like I'm failing miserably, uh, totally miserably um, in, in both my personal life and my professional life. So I started getting suicide thoughts. Never in my life did I ever, ever uh, have a suicide thought. And, and I'm, I'm, embarrassed when I, I'm embarrassed when I say this because I, uh, I used to go to suicide and I used to think of people that committed suicide as weak. And, uh, and I said, uh, I'm embarrassed to say that. Obviously, now we look at, I look at it totally different. But, uh, you know, you read the suicide note. Well, I killed myself because uh, I lost my job or my spouse left me. And I would say, why can't you just move on from that? But I was in that dark place at those people, uh, those calls that I was on. And it was, uh, and I just felt there was no meaning. There was no meaning in life for me whatsoever. And I started hearing voices in my head. And the voices in my head were saying, but then the worthless thoughts became very angry. I started becoming very angry at my agency because I went to a couple of people uh, at my agency for help, and they didn't have my back, uh, which, which kind of surprised me. And I remember one, one, one deputy distinctly who I worked with through the years, had a good relationship, and his exact words were, bro, I'm trying to get promoted. Don't hammer me with this. And, and I thought that was so tasteless because, you know, we're brothers, yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, you know, Mark, let me, I, I, let me interject here. I, I think you, you've hit something on the head when you said, obviously, you've had all these issues come up from 9 11 on. I mean, I can't even imagine what 9 11 looked like. I, I was a young officer at the time working as a detective, you know, on this coast. No idea, never even been to New York, so I can't even imagine you experiencing that. You've had all these, all these incidents, all these markers, and then you started, you started distancing yourself and gaining weight and no exercising and now you're having thoughts of suicide and i think that by having all of that you're not you're not, you're not alone I, I you probably felt like you were the only one in law enforcement that was feeling like that but i think what oh absolutely found, yeah yeah absolutely what we're, what we're finding is there's there's a there's a lot of people out there that are exactly like you were, I, I was, I, I never got to the point where I was having suicidal thoughts um, because I, I got some intervention before that, but I felt completely isolated. I felt alone. I didn't want to tell anybody kind of like you digs. I didn't want to be judged. Right. 
Because right, like exactly, said, we go exactly. to these schools and we see what happens and we're like, oh, why, you know, we're strong. We're cops. We're strong. We're not weak. We have to be the strong one. And why would somebody do that to their family? And then as you progress and you have all these things happening throughout your career with, you know, babies and burning cars, you feel isolated and oh, maybe, maybe I'm the one that's weak when it's, when in fact, that's completely opposite. There's plenty of people that feel like you were feeling, but you just felt alone. Right. And you don't want to be judged either. Correct. And you don't want to be judged by, you don't want to be judged by your peers. The last thing you want to hear is, Hey, listen, I'm not going to go work with Joe. I'm not going to go work with Mark because, uh, cause he's having nightmares or, uh, or he went on medication for depression. How can we, how can we trust this guy with our lives when, when he's messed up in his head? And that's our and, culture, uh, right? That's the culture. Yeah, that, that is our have. culture. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely. That's what we need to fix. Right, well, we have to fix that. And the culture probably to this day is, hey, have a beer. You know, chill out, have a beer. We'll calm absolutely. you down. You know, because you remember Quiet Crafts back in the day. That was, oh, yeah. That, that was some good times. I'm not going to lie. That was really good times. Right, yeah. But, but what do we do, Joe? We drove home drunk. Yeah, you know, we drove, we drove, those are very unhealthy coping skills. And right. we have to get, we have to move, o- move over to the, the healthy coping skills and to say it's okay not to be okay. It's okay exactly. to, it's, it's okay to get some help. It's okay to take some time off from work and get your head straight and, and get your personal life in order. And, and let's do this for our brothers and sisters. And as you know, and, and I know I'm preaching the choir when I say this, suicide is the number one killer in law enforcement right now for all right. first responders, actually. And uh, why, why, why are we allowing this to happen? You know, maybe I shouldn't use the word allow, but why is this happening? And it's, well, it's happening. I think, you, I think you said something earlier that you said you didn't feel supported and you didn't get any support from your agency. And I think a reason that this is happening is because the person doesn't want to come out and say something because they will feel judged, but also because they don't have the support. And without that support, now, now there's a recipe for disaster, and I think that's what we're starting to see. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Is and you know, in support be, is is in so many levels. You know, like a lot of people, like when I do my presentations around the country, I'll I'll get a lot from the officers, the rank and file officers, that um, yeah, our, our administration doesn't support us, or right. uh, our, our chief doesn't give a shit, or uh, we don't have the money to budget for peer support. Well, I look at it this way, Joe, is this, is this, it's a two way street when it comes to that. It works two different ways. It works the street level officers, the detectives, the ones that work face to face with somebody every single day, we should be, we should be watching them and making sure they're okay. And then, but the administration shouldn't be so distant from the officers where they say, okay, an officer is struggling. Okay, let's take away the gun. Let's, let's put them uh, behind a desk. Let's hide them, in other words, for a little while. And, right. uh, and then it will send them to EAP or, or we'll send them wherever. And it's all, that's all well good that you can send them some help, but, but there's no guarantee to come back to work uh, in the same position they were in. Because, you know, Joe, just as well as I do, cops are the biggest shit talkers in the world. Yeah, right. you know, and uh, just get out. That hey hey so and so hey hey Mark you know checked himself in the in-house treatment center for us for because uh, he was depressed and you know, oh my god I can't I can't work with him you know he's the guy that's gonna he's he's the guy that's not gonna pull his gun when he has to pull his gun he's not the guy that's gonna back us up he's a coward he's th- he's this that and the other thing and, and I say this in my presentation Joe a lot also is is we me and you go to work together okay tonight 
and uh, you get in a foot pursuit and you trip and fall, you break your leg. They ship you out to the emergency room. Everybody's going to go up to the emergency room. Hey, bro, I got your back. You right. know, they'll, they'll sign your cast. You know, the boss will come in and say, take all the time you need. Right. On and on and on and on and on. On the, on the flip side of that, I check myself in an in-house treatment center for a mental health disorder. Nobody's going to go up to, that, up, to the, up to that center and sign my forehead and say, hey, Mark, I hope you feel better. There'll be a few hardcore brothers that will do that. But for the most part, you'll probably get very few visits, if any. And a, a mental health injury is just like a physical injury. It's, it, ca- it can be treated and it can be corrected or, or made better. And it's really sad that, that we, 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 uh, we, we don't look at it that way as to get our health officers help that, that are struggling mentally. And it could be, and it might not even be the job. It may be marriage. Uh, it may be a personal issue or it could be the job, but I guarantee it's probably, it's probably a combination of everything oh, yeah. that's going, that's going on with, with that officer. And why are we, why are we shunning this officer? Whether they're, a, they're a one year cop or they're a 30 year cop one way or another yeah, first of all, they're our brothers and sisters. You know, the agency gives us this bulletproof vest. They give us this taser. They give us a gun. They give us an asp. They give us mace. They give us all these SWAT vans. They give us all this stuff to say, yeah, we got your back. We're going to protect you physically. But what do they really give us to protect us mentally? To be honest with you, not a heck of a lot, if anything. Well, that's, it's- you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast in the, in the first place. You know, as as an administrator, come up through the ranks by by hard work and stuff i i I wanted to come out not just to my own agency but to everyone else and say which took a lot for me to do but say hey listen this is where it starts it starts with conversations it starts with somebody having the courage to come out and say look i have a problem i had a problem i dealt with it this is what i did and start educating everybody else so that at least in my agency, I walk around and talk about it all the time because I want people to feel like they're going to be supported. And I've had people come to me already uh, and call me on the phone and say, Hey, I I'm having anxiety. I'm having this great. Thanks for coming to me. We'll catch it now. We'll get you whatever help you need. So you don't go down the road that I went down. I don't want to see anybody go down the road that I went down or the road that my chief went down because it's not, it's not a pretty road. You know, it's, it's, it's bumpy. Oh, it's, it's a horrible road. It's, it's horrible. horrible. Yeah. Panic yeah. attacks, anxiety. They're terrible. And oh, so it's, I, it's, it's brutal. That. Exactly. Right. And, and you are doing the right thing as an administrator. You, you are doing the right thing. And that's really cool that an administrator tells the troops, we, I get this because I've been there and that's really, really cool. And unfortunately, uh, as much as I hate to say it, a lot of administrators aren't educated in this. Uh, that or, or, is true. That is right. True. Yeah, it's getting it, better. It, it's getting better. There's a lot yeah, of- it, it is getting better. I, I agree with you on that. Absolutely. But, um, you know, like I did, I did a presentation for a local PD uh, not too long ago. I did a two-hour presentation, and their chief um, sat, in the, sat in my two-hour presentation. And I thought to myself while he was sitting there before I got started, you know, do I tone it down a little bit? Do I, I'm like, no, he needs to hear the cold, true facts of what it's like for a person that's struggling to hear it. And hopefully it will hit home for him. And then after the presentation, he called me into his office and he's like, I don't even know where to begin. He goes, fabulous. And I'm not patting myself on the back when I say this. Um, That was fabulous. But one thing he said to me that really stuck out, he goes, you stood up in front of my, my agency and you told your darkest secrets 
and you told it, you told the doctor secrets with a smile on your face. You told it professional. You you made it funny. But I looked at you as a real person. I didn't look at you as a guy that's reading out of a book that the chemical balance on the left side of the brain says this. So right. let's do that. You spoke from the heart. And it was one thing you said in the presentation really hit home is you said, I am not a mental health professional, but I've been to these dark places. He was, I could have hired a therapist to come in and talk about uh, PTSD, PTSI, talk about uh, depression. And the reason why I picked you, and I got to brag when I say this, is off your reputation, but it's just the way you present yourself. You're a down-to-earth guy, and that's what we need. What do I need to do to start a unit? What do I do need, need to reach out to the So I gave him some advice, and I just talked to him about maybe uh, – Less than a week ago, and he said the coronavirus now is obviously putting a lot of stuff on hold. But he goes, we're still, he goes, I sent an email out the other day and I went to briefings that the coronavirus will affect mental health also. And, uh, and, I, and I spoke about that. And I'm like, man, that's awesome, man. I, I'm really happy to hear that. That's really, really cool that, that you're doing this. And you, I also initiated a policy that any person that needs to take a mental health day or days off, it's not going to go off their. Uh, it's not going to go off their vacation time. They can go on company time. And I'm like, man, that, that, that you're hitting it. You, you rock, rock on, bro. That's just really, really cool. And I said, now I need you to do me a favor. He goes, what's that? Pass that on to your other chiefs at your chiefs meetings um, and stuff like that. If you want me to come in and talk, I'd be more than happy to. He goes, I, I, I'm in the process of doing that right now. Again, the coronavirus is kind of putting yeah. everything, putting everything. Yeah, and, and I get that. I, yeah. I truly, I truly, truly, I truly get that. I. I get that, but the coronavirus is going to go away, and uh, or it's going to lessen, and then we have to go back to helping our officers. Well, for sure, and you know, I know that there's a lot of chiefs out there that are that are, you know, beating the drum for this, which is awesome. And I know that the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the IACP, and fire organizations and EMS organizations, dispatch organizations are are all starting to, to, to beat the drum and, and get the word out and change this culture, which is what's going to need it. It's going to need it. You know, it's going to need everybody coming together to, to do this, but um, let's, let's, can you just uh, let, go back to um, when you hit rock bottom, Mark, what did you do? Like what, how did you get yourself out of hitting that bottom? Well, so the night I decided that I wanted to die by suicide. Um, so I was sitting in my cruiser, I was in an industrial park and um Again, Joe, I felt so friggin' worthless. I, I didn't feel like a man. I didn't feel like a cop. I just felt like there was the, there was no reason why I need to be on this earth at all. Uh, I felt that my marriage was failing. I felt that I disappointed my wife. I disappointed the agency. So that's when I got my suicide thoughts. So what I did was I wrote a suicide note. And on the first page of the note, I wrote it to the agency. I, um, I wrote it very angry. A lot of it was F this, F you. Um, and I wrote it to the uh, I wrote it to the sheriff. I wrote it to that lieutenant. I wrote to a few coworkers, people that I felt that did not have my back. And on the flip side of the page, I wrote, I wrote it to my mom and my wife that I'm sorry. Um, you guys will be able to move on from this. It's something I had to do. Please don't judge me. Please understand. And it was really weird what, what I did. And uh I took the note and I put it in one of those paper, um, those plastic uh, paper protectors, whatever you want to call them. You slide the piece of paper in there. Yes. And uh, I took some evidence tape and I hung it off my rear view mirror. Now, you could probably relate to this, Joe, being Italian. I'm assuming you're Catholic. 
yeah, and, uh, yeah I, was great. I was raised in a very strict Catholic home. And um, Catholics don't believe in suicide. We believe that's damage in the soul. We believe that God will not let us into heaven whatsoever by, by, uh, by, by killing ourselves. So I said a prayer. And in the prayer, I asked for forgiveness. Now, God does forgive. There's no question about that. There's no question about that God forgives. And to kind of make a light of the situation was I made a deal with God. I said, uh, when I come up to heaven, I, I, I said, I want to go to heaven. I'll work the front gate. You know, I'll be your security. I'll be, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and I'll, I'll get rid of your muscle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'll lose some weight, but I'll, but I'll be yeah. your muscle. You know. Uh, so, uh, and I, and I got a message from him that he did understand. So now I put the gun in my mouth, and is this is really weird when I say this. When I put the gun in my mouth, it was very calming. It very was. It just it made me feel at ease. And suicide is not about dying; it's about stopping the pain. And I, I felt better with the gun in my mouth. And I put uh, in my CD player uh, for uh, I put the song on um, Welcome to the Jungle, Guns N' Roses, a good hard rock beat song. And uh, it really pumped me up. So I put my head back and I was getting ready to squeeze the trigger. And when I was getting ready to squeeze the trigger, I had my finger on the trigger. Uh, I saw I saw a cruiser come in. <clears throat> and when it came in, it was another deputy. His name was uh, Craig McGee. He has since has passed away. And Craig... Uh, uh, Craig talked me down. He asked me what I was doing. I was pretty much very frank with him. I said, Craig, I'm here to shoot myself. I don't want you to see this. You need to know. My answer back was, I'm your sergeant. I'm giving you an order. You need to leave. He goes, I am not leaving. I'm not, I am not leaving you. So he said, he saved my life. Wow. He truly saved my life. So I went home early that night. Uh, watch commander made up some BS story that I wasn't feeling good. Went home, changed out sitting by my pool, started drinking, and had the gun at my pool, started getting the suicide thoughts again. I, re- I put the gun back in my mouth again, but then I started thinking about my wife. And I said, you know, when she uh, gets ready for work and she sees the pool doors open and she sees me laying there in that mess, that's, that's not cool to her, not by any means. That's going to give her trauma that she's going to live for the rest of her life. Right. So, so I, I contacted the, uh, the Boston Police Stress Unit and I made an appointment uh, with them to come up and talk to them. And the reason why I left Florida to go to Boston is I didn't want anybody in Florida to know what I was doing because I was right. afraid that, that I was going to be fired, uh, mocked, or anything like that. So I went, course, to Boston, yeah. Yeah, I went up to Boston the next day, and I agreed to check myself in the in-house treatment center. But when I checked myself into the in-house treatment center, it really hit home, and I became combative. Now, if your listeners, if you guys, if your listeners don't, I want you guys to, to listen to one thing I'm going to say here when I say this. When I came, when I became combative in that facility, they actually shackled me into a bed. Now, we as first responders, we, we, nobody comes near us. Um, you know, when you're in a traffic stop, you're in charge. When you're in a domestic, you're in charge. You know, nobody walks up on us. We get in our defensive stance the whole nine yards. Now, I want, I want our first responders to think about this. Picture yourself laying in a bed with your feet and your arms or your wrists shackled and you can't even scratch your nose and you're flipping out saying my, my life is over. My career is over. And it was probably one of the, by far one of the worst experiences of my life. When my mother came in the next day, I couldn't even hug her. Wow. And my mother, my mother since passed away, God rest her soul. We, we were very close and that devastated me that I couldn't hug my mom. And, uh, and I told her, I said, Ma, take those straps off me, Ma. 
I'm okay. I'm better now. She's like, I, I can't, I can't do that. So I, so I got mad at her. I also got, was mad at God that God put me down this path, um, which the path was God only gives you so much that you can handle. And boy, I'll tell you, he was testing me. There was no question about that, you know? Um, so it was very, very difficult um, to lay in that bed and then uh, and to have people come in and see me like that. And to be, and I was very disrespectful to the nurses. I was very disrespectful to the doctor to the point where also they, they had to give me a catheter because I refused to take my medication. I refused to give blood. And I just said to myself, can't be any worse than this. So I spent two weeks, I spent two weeks up there I um, I lied, and what I mean by lying is this, I told the therapists and the, uh, that I was feeling better, and I signed out uh, a, uh, AMA against medical advice. And when I came back to Florida, I was just as miserable as I was when I left Florida. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was tough. So I went back to work, but I said I got to be positive. A couple of positive did happen. Things did happen. Was I um, I transferred to a different area, worked for a different lieutenants. The call volume was a lot lower, and that helped a lot. You know, starting to lose the weight a little bit. Uh, my marriage got back on track, but I still still have was still having nightmares. And uh, I went through about four or five different therapists till I found that my present therapist, Jamie, who's the next cop. And I recommend that. I recommend when you look for a mental health professional, is somebody that's either was a first responder or deals a lot with first responder or has a connection to first responders. Uh, because as you know, Joe, we're a different culture. We're, we're weird. <laughs> you know, we're, no, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're going to be in your comfort zone. So when I came out with my issues, um, I came out during a tra uh, training class, but I, I came out very angry and I dropped the F-bomb a lot. That led to a discipline, to a write-up of, of, of my conduct in that training class. Well, I didn't let that stop me. So I, st I, I contacted the media and the media was actually very interested in my story. But when I spoke, I spoke very angry. But then I, I was learned that I learned now to turn that around and to use humor to just be myself, just be this average show as this average guy that went through some tough times. So when I speak now, it's uh, it's totally different on how I spoke when I spoke years ago. And um so, so to hit fast forward a little bit, um, I went from going to therapy to three, three days a week to uh, two days a week to one day a week to every other week to once a month. And that's what I'm on now is I'm on a once a month maintenance plan. So that's where it's worked out really, really well. I'm diagnosed with PTSD, depression, and anxiety. You know, do I still have my bad days? Yeah, absolutely, I, I, I do. But I've learned through therapy, uh, through healthy coping skills, how, how to make those bad days better days. And it's uh, and I and since I retired, it's uh, it's a year this month I retired. I feel like I, I, like a totally different person. And I pat myself on the back when I say this. I weighed myself yesterday. I'm at 219 pounds. When I retired, I was, when I retired, I was at 257 because I'm working out a lot, doing a lot of cardio, walking the dogs, uh, eating a lot, not eating as good as I should eat. Because Joe, you can relate being Italian. Listen, you we know. gotta have our pasta. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, yeah, we can't say no to a meatball. We just no, can't. Forget yeah, about you know, it. yeah, yeah. Our parents, would, our parents would, our parents would not be happy about that. Yeah, my mom yeah, would yeah. disown me if I did. Oh, you think? Yeah, yeah. Especially a meatball out of a can. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah that, for, that 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 ain't gonna happen. That's so, so yeah, exactly. So I, uh, you know, and then, but I've I've learned now that uh, my my anger I've turned into something good. And by doing this podcast, by doing my presentations, by speaking at the police academy, 
speaking at different things here and there, it's really, really helped me uh, feel a lot better about myself, a lot positive about myself. But on the flip side of that, when I when I came out with my issues and I started getting a lot of media attention and things like that, I had guys coming up to me, well, you're just saying that to get promoted. You know, you want people to feel bad for you. But well, I, like I said earlier, I was a sergeant for 19 years and I never took a lieutenant's test once. But my goal is, was then and still is to this day, that if one person hears this podcast that's struggling or he or she knows somebody that's struggling and gets them some help, we hit a home run, Joe. Yeah, that, that, that's the bottom line. I 100% agree with you. That, yeah, and that was absolutely for this. If I, if I could just help one person, then Amen. my job is done. And I know it's going to help more. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from um, people that have messaged me through this through this podcast. So it's working and, uh, you know, one, one person at a time, one podcast at a time. And, and that's great. So exactly. Mark, let's, it, it, let's, it, it, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, Joe. Go no, ahead. No, no, go, no, go right ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's baby steps. You know, you know what I mean? But like you, I like what you said, one person and people are reaching out to you right now and you're doing the right thing, bro. Definitely. You're definitely doing the right thing. We're, we're both doing what we can, right? We make a good team, don't we? Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so let's, um, let, I want to get into your work with Blue Help and what Blue Help is all about. I know um, just from the research I've done that they do a lot with, you know, suicide and, and prevention and raising funds to help. Uh, families, um, but you're on their board. So can you just tell me a little bit about how you got into this, into Blue Help and 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 what it's about and, and what what's their vision? Sure, absolutely. Well, Blue Help stands, the help stands for honor, educate, lead, and prevent. We want to honor our officers that died by suicide. Now, uh, unfortunately, when an officer dies by suicide, the chances of that officer getting a uh, police funeral with, with, the, with the honor guard, with a 21-gun salute, uh, it's probably pretty slim, to be honest with you. Um, but we believe in, in Blue Help that we honor those officers. We want to tell those officers that we get it and we honor them and we want to honor their families that they left behind and honor their families that they're, they're not alone. And by the honor also, we want to honor officers that are struggling to show to them that they're not alone. The E for educate is we want to educate the public. We want to educate officers, kind of like what we're doing right now, Joe. We're, we're doing right. some education here. Uh, we educate the public, educate officers, educate the administration, educate anybody that will listen to us to say that suicide is the number one killer in law enforcement and, the, can, and that we want to help our officers that are struggling. So if anybody hears us, whether, whether it's a family member, a friend of a cops, a friend of a friend of a friend of a cops or something like that, if we're getting the education part out, um, I'll give you an example. We did a uh, Blue Help uh, was uh, was asked to attend a 5K, a police 5K uh, last month. So I set up a table, put our information out there, sold some T-shirts, uh, challenge coins and things like that. I had two or three people come up to me. They said, we have no idea that this is that bad in law enforcement. And I said, well, it's a, it's a libel. Thank you for telling us this. Right. And I'm like, you're welcome. Because, you know, and um, we lost 228 officers to suicide last year. We lost 141 officers to line of duty deaths. And I'm not taking anything away from our officers that died in the line of duty. Please, please don't anybody think I'm I'm trying to steal the spotlight or anything like that. But we do the we do the do the numbers. That's almost a hundred more officers died by suicide. Well, Mark, I think and, I think you know hundred more that we know of. That we know of that exactly. Know of. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, these are the ones that Blue Help has verified, right. either through the family or through the agency that said, yes, this, di- this, this officer died by suicide. But Joe, you know something? I'm glad you brought that up. I would put my retirement check on this, that the wall in Washington, D.C., which I have nothing but respect for, okay, there are officers that died by suicide on that wall. I would, I would probably, no doubt. There I, was, would, there, I would agree with you. There was no doubt. There was no doubt. It was just worded differently. They were cleaning their gun and the gun went off accidentally. They were driving home and they hit a patch of ice and hit a tree at 80 miles an hour. Um, now, one thing I want you to think about also, Joe, is this, is the national law enforcement, they recognize heart attacks as a line of duty death, which they should. 16 officers died by heart attacks last year in, two, in uh, 2019. What leads to heart attacks? Yeah. Stress, right? Anxiety, Stress. panic. <laughs> yes. Bad, yeah. bad hard, eating. Hard, you know, high it, blood pressure yeah. because you're stressed out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the FBI would call that a clue. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, the, the L the L in, in uh, help is we want to lead. We want to lead officers, their families, and, the, in, and these agencies to assistance, whether it's hearing a presentation, was was listening to a podcast, whether it's uh, providing peer support training, or anything like that and prevention. Obviously we want to prevent suicide, but we have to be real here for a minute. Are we can prevent, are we going to prevent every suicide? Obviously the answer is no, but if we can make a dent in the numbers, then we're kicking ass. If we're making a dent, uh, we're making a dent. So blue help, we're a nonprofit organization. We're based out of Massachusetts. Um, the founder, one of the founders, Karen Solomon, she's the president of uh, blue help. We, we do a lot. We, um, we, we, we honor the, we, we, we do a lot of work with the families. We did have a, we did have a dinner set up for um, police week uh, that we're going to bring a hundred families of officers that died by suicide in there. And we're going to honor the families and honor the officers. We're going to pay for their travel, pay for their hotel and pay for their meal for this dinner. And we're going to recognize them. Unfortunately, due to the Corona virus, we had to cancel that. Right. And we're just, we're distraught about that, but it's only going to make, it, 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 but we can move on from that and we can do it at another time. Yeah. Absolutely. We also have a thing. We also have a thing called Cape camp, uh, camp April, where we, um, we have a, uh, I believe it's a three day camp for children of officers that die by suicide, which is really cool. So kids, the kids can re- interact with, uh, with other kids that have lost, lost one of their parents to suicide. So that's that's really cool that we're doing that also, and we we you know we provide information, we uh, we track suicides, we uh, we do a lot of presentations, we do a lot of media, uh, we do any anybody that will listen to us, you know, we, we're more than happy to talk to them also. And on our Facebook, I'm sorry, on our uh, on our website, we have a thing called uh, a, a link called First Help. If you click on that, is uh, you click on that, you put in very basic information. Is uh, and then you'll be able to uh, find find a find a mental health provider in your area that specializes in first responders, which we think is really cool. And we're also just got involved in a program that I personally got involved in called Help the Blue. And Help the Blue is a uh, tele a teletherapy. What I mean by teletherapy is um, you can do it on your phone, you can do it on your laptop, you can do it in in your car at your house. And there's a, there's a mental health professional that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week for you to talk to that mental health professional. So if you have an issue you want to talk about at two o'clock in the morning, there's a mental health professional there waiting to talk to you. Now, I'm not downplaying any other, any other organizations that do this, but a lot of those organizations are staffed by peer support specialists, which are great. Don't get me wrong, because I was a peer support specialist. 
So they, they do a great job, but they refer you uh, to a mental health professional. What I, what I love about Help the Blue is that there's a mental health professional right there for you, right then and there. They're licensed. We've researched them. We've interviewed them. And uh, it's really, really cool that, that, that we do that. Tell, you, tell the listeners, how do we find your, is it www.bluehelp.com.org? Uh, www.bluehelp.org. Org. And then for the, uh, yeah, and then for the uh, mental health assistance, it's uh, First Help. You click on that and it'll be a list of providers. All right. I'll put a link to that on our, on, uh, on my website so we could. Uh... Yeah, if you would, that'd be, that'd be great, Joe. That'd be awesome, as a matter of fact. So, Mark, we're going to start to wrap up here a little bit. But I, one other question I have, I think the last question I really have for you is, you know, what, what's next? What do we need to do to, to change this culture? What, what, what's next for us? We have to have buy-in, Joe. We have to have buy-in from the one-year officer, the 10-year officer, the 25-year officer, the officer. We have to have buy-in from everybody. Uh, it, it's like this. If you told – if you told a one, two, three-year officer, hey, listen, we're going to start this mandatory mental health program here at our agency where you go see a therapist once a year for a year, you probably won't hear too much feedback back from that. But you tell a 25-year officer that, what are they going to think? Oh, you're spying on me or uh, uh, you know, it's not confidential it's, or things like that. So we need buy-in from the grunts, the, the street-level officers, all the way up to the administration and everybody in between that also. We need the buy-in from everybody. We need buy-in from families. We need buy-in from politicians. We need we need buy-ins from civic groups that we have to, the, everybody needs to understand that suicide is the number one killer of first responders. And we've got, we've got to have a buy-in to recognize that. So through podcasts, through presentations, through uh, civic events, through a, a, a 5K representing suicide, represent fallen officers. If we get the word out, you know, like the old saying, go, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. But we, but one thing, one thing uh, I wanted to address also that, that just popped in my head was this, is field training officers. You're one of the most important uh, positions in the agency because you have a brand new officer sitting next to you in that cruiser who has never been a cop, who is probably having some issues. Oh man, this is over. This is overwhelming or things like that. Our field training officers need to keep an eye on our rookie officers also. Because well, I agree with you. I think the first yeah. field training officer is one of the most important people in the, in the entire agency. In, it, by, it, far. It, by far. And, and, and I'm not saying this because I was a sergeant and I would say secondly, if not uh, tied with field training is the sergeants. You have, a, you, have, you have a lot of sergeants. They just distance themselves from the agency. Your expression, call me if you need me, need me if you call me. That, that doesn't work. I can be honest when I say this. I probably drove some of the guys and girls on my shift crazy because I'd always check on them. You know, and kind of a funny story, if you don't mind, Joe, for a quick second. Yeah, I, uh, I had a guy on my squad uh, right before I retired, young kid, 23, 24 years old, sends me a message. Hey, Sarge, can I, can I talk to you? Can you beat me over here? So I pull up next to him. We're, we're, we're talking car to car. And he goes, hey, you're all into this mental health thing. I, I need some help. I'm like, oh, absolutely, man. Yeah, this this makes my day. Absolutely. He goes, I said, what's going on, man? He goes, well, you know, I've been a cop for two years now, and I think I'm doing pretty decent. I go, you are. You're doing a good job. And, you know, I, I live with my parents. And my parents told me, hey, you're making decent money. It's time for you to move out and get a place of your own. 
I don't want to move out because my mother does my laundry. My mother cooks my meals. She packs my lunch. Now, back then I was, I was 54. <laughs> Joe, I can't relate to that at all. You, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, no, right. not one, not one bit. I, I was very independent. You know, uh, I moved out when I was 18. I, um, you know, you know, but, but that, you, you, now think about that for a second. That's that, that crisis in his life right now is bothering him, which is, if, which is going to affect him on his job also. And uh, so I said to him, I said, well, you, you got to do this. You, I, are you putting money away, you know, to buy a house? He goes, I am. I said, well, how are you doing? He goes, I'm doing pretty good. I said, well, I said, here's an idea. Why don't you take your parents with you when you start looking at houses and get their imports and things like that? Is it going to be tough to move out of your parents' place? Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. But nothing says you can't, you can't stop by on your day off and have dinner with them or hang out with them or whatever. I wish my mom was still alive so I could spend time with her, you know. And he's like, okay, that makes sense. So we have to understand, um, we, we as sergeants, that – the issue may not be the job. It may be something personal going on in their life, such as that, that the, uh, the, the guy I was speaking to, or a divorce, or financial problems, or things like that. So we've got to change the culture in so many ways. And you know this, Joe, just as well as I do. Do we bring our personal problems to work? Absolutely, we do. Yeah, yeah, you know, Yeah. And we've got to, and we, you know, we don't draw our line and say work is work and home is home. That's not what we do. But Whatever, whatever our whole, whatever's going on in our lives, we we have to show our brothers and sisters that we have their backs and we're there to help them. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, that's exactly, and we just need to talk about it. We need to destigmatize it by by making it a conversation that everyone's having. And you know, it's not just we we we, we talked a lot about it on this podcast. Um, police and police suicide. But like you said, it's all first responders. You know, there's just not the numbers to support what firemen or EMS or dispatchers are going through. But I guarantee you if we, and that fire's doing a little bit better job of tracking that, but I guarantee you if we found out what those numbers are, they're, they're going to be just as high as, as law enforcement. And so it's, it's a, it's a systemic problem for all first responders for sure. Oh, absolutely. And we, we include first response. We caught, we also, you know, our doctors and nurses that work in the ER and uh, yeah, I, you know, it, we're a team, you know, we're, we're, you know, we, we say all the time, we're one big family. Well, let's start acting like we're one big family. Okay. Right. <laughs> you know, I heard that line a hundred times, but we're kind of, we're kind of a dysfunctional family to a point, you know, <laughs> we're not the Brady bunch by any means. You know, right. uh, but but yeah, we have to include our firefighters, our EMS people, our dispatchers. Uh, we have we we have, we have to include we have to include all of them because they're on the front lines just like we are, and they're only human. And I, I couldn't imagine uh, you know running you know uh, trying to run into a burning building to save somebody or be on the phone a nine one one call where this person just got shot. No help! I need help! I need help! I, I and, and I can't remember dispatch. No, no, not for me either. For that me. takes a special that takes a special person to right. work at work in, the, in dispatch. There's right. no doubt about that. I couldn't do so, that. Job. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. So we've got to help each other. And it doesn't matter what uniform you have on at all. We gotta we gotta help each other. I I totally agree. Hey brother, thank you very much um, for taking the time out of your day to, to talk to all of us about you know the things that you went through and your journey and I'm glad things have worked out for you. And um, I hope one day that you and I can sit down in person and have a beer. I'd be happy to come back to, to Boston or to Florida. 
for that matter. Absolutely. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, Joe, we make a good team, and we're, we both have the same vision, the same vision on things, and we we can make this work. We can de- definitely, definitely make this work. Yeah, we just we just got to keep it up, and I think we will. Absolutely, brother. Absolutely. All right, man. You have a good one. Thanks again, Mark. Joe, I really appreciate nothing but love for you, brother. All right, take care. Thank you, man. Bye bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for episode number five of the Mindful Cops. I think anytime a first responder steps forward and talks about their depression, their anxiety is one thing. But to have someone come on the show and someone admit that they had a gun in their mouth and they were contemplating suicide is really powerful. And I commend Mark for doing what he does to talk about his struggle. So that somebody else does not have to go through what Mark went through. We will post uh, links to bluehelp.org and their first help. So if anybody out there needs that resource, you can go to their webpage and find it. It'll be on our webpage, themindfulcops.com. Again, it's also www.bluehelp.org. And under that, you will find first help. I encourage you to log on to that and That's a great resource. Thanks again for taking the time to listen during this crazy time of going on in the world. And I hope you and your family are well. Take care. Until next time.